Hey everyone, welcome to the Cultivate Podcast with the Grove Church. I'm Charlie Lofton, the lead pastor there, and thank you so much for joining us. And today we are starting a three-week series on what does it really mean to be a godly man? And this was kind of birthed out of some content that we created for the men's retreat. And so what we're going to do over the next three weeks is that I'll, I'll, I'll basically, I'll be doing this podcast. And then for the next one, we're going to be hearing from an elder in our church, Roger Harris, and we're going to listen in on the talk that he gave actually at the men's retreat. I'm going to redo the talk that I gave at the men's retreat to kind of make it in a, a better format for this media, but then Roger's was just great. And so we're going to get to hear his. And then we're going to close it out, our third episode, with Mark. And Mark is going to essentially re-record his talk as well for the same thing to really kind of help us understand, like, what does it really mean to be a godly man? So I'm going to kind of introduce the topic. And then Roger's talk is incredible. And it's just kind of about the journey that he's been on. And then Mark's going to close it out with us, just a little more practical ideas. And kind of where this came from is just this problem that I feel like that has been around for a really long time which is there doesn't really seem to be a clear and compelling vision or definition of what it really means to be a godly man. And what does it mean? It's like if, 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 if you were going to tell somebody like, hey, somebody's a man, like, I, I want you to be a good man. And he says, what does it mean to be a good man? Would you be able to give a good definition for that? And I, and I asked the question is like, is there anything distinct about being a man versus being a woman? And these questions are actually a lot more complicated because we've received a lot of mixed messages. Because I would feel like, you know, certainly for most of my early adulthood, say in the 90s, even into the early 2000s, I feel like that there was a lot of pressure culturally to get people to believe that there really weren't any distinctives between men and women apart from the physical aspects of biology. And so that we, you really even shouldn't talk about, okay, this is the way a man thinks, this is the way a woman thinks, a man's brain versus a woman's brain, kind of led to believe for most of my adult life that there was something actually inherently sexist about that line of thinking. And then in the last five years or so, that it feels like that that has actually changed a little bit as kind of the, as the transgender movement has kind of taken more prominence and we're working to understand a little better kind of how that community works. Now we begin to hear things like someone saying, I was born in a woman's body, but with a man's brain or vice versa. And so now it is, there seems to be some idea out there that there is such a thing that your, that your brain can orient you towards being a man or being a woman and that there are actual real distinctions between a man's brain and a woman's brain. And so we have these kind of competing, conflicting messages. And so a man who wants to honor the people around him and to live in a way that is, that is good, is respectful of other people, being a man that, that God has called them to be, which of these messages is he supposed to listen to? Or is it some sort of combination of those? And as you kind of, I don't know how much time you spend, I mean, you're at least listening to a podcast and how much time you spend on the internet or on social media, and you've seen this topic come up, it actually ends up being fairly controversial because there are some people that say that even to bring this topic up is just inappropriate. It is unnecessary. Maybe it is sexist. Maybe it's whiny. Or that just even to ask this question, like that somehow that now men who have for most, if not all of human history, had a 
more than a lion's share percentage of the power, the authority, and the wealth in our society that now somehow would be whining about the fact that now they're not sure what their place is. And so I don't want this to be in the spirit of any of that. In fact, that I would say is just one more of the voices that just kind of leave men a little uncertain. And however you would define the problem, depending on your history, your perspective, maybe even your political beliefs, your your perspective on what God says in the Bible, I think we can all recognize at least this, that if men aren't being good men, that's a problem. And if men, for right or for wrong, don't understand really what the definition of a good man is and really what the expectations are on them, if you don't know what the expectations are, then you're going to struggle. So I think we can all agree, depending on, regardless of how we get to the problem, I think we can all agree that there is a problem and, and, it, and it, needs to be, it needs to be fixed. And I feel like that there are two kind of strains of thought out there of just what manhood is supposed to be. And if, and if you, you know, I, Ian, you know, I don't know who you follow on Twitter or whatever. I mean, it's like, and there's these two groups and they, and they like to fight with each other. And one is kind of the, the reclaiming of real strong masculinity and masculinity is described as, you know, power, strength, you know, maybe even aggression that, that, that men are kind of wired to, to be strong in some way. And then there's a group of people that's like, well, that is ridiculous. And that's what causes the patriarchy. And then that's in fact, what is called toxic masculinity. And so then a different picture is, is portrayed of, of a, of a much softer man, a much more passive man. I mean, who will, who will step out. And, and honestly, both of those things, they, they kind of actually exist together in a cycle where a guy is told perhaps that maybe he needs to be stronger and he comes out and he's strong, but his strong isn't really the type of strong that I think that God is calling us to. It's, it's, it's more aggressive. And that aggressiveness actually hurts people. And they'll come to that guy and be like, you need to calm it down. You need to be softer. And so he interprets that as very passive and staying out of the way. And then people come to him and like, you're kind of a coward. And what's wrong with you? Why don't you take more initiative? And most guys will kind of ping pong back and forth between a really aggressive, forceful man and kind of someone who just kind of fades into the background. And, and you can caricature, and what, and what tends to happen is, is that one group will kind of caricature the other one. And you end up with kind of these two very incomplete, imperfect, and honestly not very helpful definitions and perspectives about what it really means to be a man. And so I think I do agree on some level with both of them while also disagreeing with both of them, because what it means to, I think, to be a really godly man involves, again, both of those things. I think it does involve a certain type of strength. We need to make sure we understand what we mean by strength, but it also, you know, it, it requires, we'll just say, a, a, a gentle touch as well. And so figuring out, I think, kind of, what does it mean to be gentle? What does it mean to be strong? Understanding the, the what's, the definitions, and how to do that, I think ultimately becomes the challenge. And over these, again, over these next few weeks, I just want you to kind of spend some time, either if you're a man and you're listening to this, kind of 
help asking God to kind of help you have a clearer perspective about what it means to be a man, or if you're not a man, to help you understand what it is that we're hoping that men can become and, and maybe what you can do to help inspire the men in your life to become better men. And so the definition that I like to come up, that, that, that I really like and has become really very important to me, actually comes from um, what I would say is my favorite movie of all time. It's the movie Braveheart. And this movie is incredibly old now, um, which just talks about how old I am, but it's an incredible movie. It's about a guy who is essentially a Scottish rebel trying to help the Scottish people gain independence from, from England. The movie is based on a historical figure, even though the movie is not, you know, it's not, it's not a historical, it's not designed to be, you know, history. It's not a documentary by any means, but it does tell a story. It tells a story from history of this guy named William Wallace. And again, he is fighting for the independence of Scotland. And so in order for me to kind of tell you the story that I want, it actually comes from the very end of the movie. So I have to spoil it for you, but I think there is at least a 10 year statute of limitations on whether or not you can spoil a movie. And this is you know more than 25 years old, so it can't really be a spoiler. And plus, again, there's a historical record to this. So he gets executed ultimately near the end of the movie for being a traitor. And a guy named Robert the Bruce is set to become the king of Scotland, but not, a, not an independent king, but kind of a puppet king under the king of England. And so there's this scene at the very end where um, Robert the Bruce is there with all these Scottish troops and they are essentially there to pay tribute to the army of England, that their, that their kingdom, such as it is, will just kind of be a subsidiary underneath the rule of the king of England. You know, and this English general is out there and he's like, hey, are you, are you ready to have your, I mean, he uses a Scottish word. Can I say a Scottish word on the podcast? Kissed by a, uh, by a Scottish king. How do you say you say that word? If you say it, Scottish accent, Scottish word, still, still a bad word. But anyway. And so he says that, and so that's what they're ex expecting to happen. But Robert the Bruce has a change of heart at the last minute and kind of gives a fairly inspirational, you know, couple of lines there to his army to say, hey, let, instead, instead of doing this, let's go fight. And then a narrator comes on, and all the way up until this point, there's been a narrator in the movie, and the narrator has been Robert the Bruce. But at the very end, the narrator changes to William Wallace, which is Mel Gibson's character. And he's describing their fight and that they, that they win their freedom. And he describes them this way. He says, and they fought like warrior poets. Warrior poets. And earned their freedom. And that phrase, it, I, I remember as a very young man hearing that phrase, and it just kind of hitting me, but really more with the, I don't, I don't know if I know what that means. I don't know if I know what it means. And I've seen that movie so many times. I mean, it's well into the double digits number of times that I've seen this movie. And every time it's just become very compelling to me. And it really kind of ultimately became an earworm for me where that just this idea, like, what are they talking about? What does it mean to be a warrior poet? Because it puts two different things together. If I said that a compelling vision for a man was to be a warrior, you'd have an idea of what that meant. If I were to tell you that a compelling idea for manhood was to be a poet, you have an idea about what that means. But if I were to say that you were to be a warrior poet, like you're taking two very different things and bringing them together. And as you think about those two ideas, a warrior, 
What is the primary trait of a warrior? I mean, courageous, a courageous man. Well, what is, what is a poet? A poet is tender. So you've got courageous and tender put together, which again, I believe is very different than these two ideas that are out there about what men are supposed to be. Because there's a big difference between being courageous and tender versus being aggressive and soft. Those are two very different things. And I believe that this idea of being a warrior poet, I think, can provide at least a basic framework for us to help us understand what I think God has called us to do and to be as men, that I want to be both courageous and tender. And so I want to use just a couple of examples here from the Bible of guys that I feel like that exhibit this. And then again, we're going to hear from Roger and kind of how this played out in his life. And then we're going to hear from Mark about some of the more practical ways that this can play out in our lives. But I feel like the, one of the greatest examples of this in the scripture is a guy named David. You know who David is? He was the second king of Israel. And he's kind of known primarily for a couple of things. One is, is he was an incredible warrior. He was, the, he was essentially the leader of the first king, Saul's armies. And there was this song that they would sing about him that talked about how David had slain his tens of thousands. So he, in and of himself, was an incredible warrior, but also led men in the battlefield for years and saw many, many victories. And so he was a warrior in the most literal sense for the kingdom of Israel, both before, and, before he became king and after he became king. But what else is he known for? Well, he wrote almost all of the Psalms. He played the harp. He was a very tender person as well. And so he had that literal poet side to him as well. So he was a literal warrior and a literal poet. Someone who, when the situation called for it, was courageous and led men into the battlefield, but was also very in touch with his emotions, had very deep, intimate friendships with the men in his life, and um, loves, you know, we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about his, about his, some of his sexual choices that he made with women which is kind of his downfall. But you also see again that this very tender side that he had in expressing and pouring out his heart to God as well. And so at his best, when he was at his best, he brought both of these elements together and was very comfortable with both. He could, he could cry. He, he would cry when the situation called for it. And he would stand up as a, a relatively young child against a nine foot tall warrior. And then with the courage of, of God behind him would, I mean, fought a giant. I mean, fought a very seasoned warrior and defeated him. And so whichever the situation called for, David would do it. But here's the challenge with David using David as an example. But, you know, in, in a positive way, again, all throughout the rest of the Old Testament, he is described as essentially the ideal king who more than any other king was, quote, a man after God's own heart. And so I think if we want to be a man after God's own heart, we want to bring both of these things together. A tenderness, an emotional tenderness, a sensitivity both to God and to others, but then also the courage to do what is right, even when it is hard. But David had a downfall as well, and I think it's, it can be the downfall for all of us, which is... There's a story, it's the story of David and Bathsheba. And the story starts with uh, the very first verse. It says, and 
during the time when kings would lead their people in the battlefield, David stayed home. So there was a moment when it was time to be courageous, to defend your country against enemies who wanted to hurt them, who wanted to conquer them. There was a time where he needed to courageously lead his army, but he chose to stay home. So the situation called for courage and he chose to be passive. And then you see that he is out on his rooftop and he sees across the way that a woman is bathing on her rooftop. And he says, she's very beautiful. And he says, go and get her. And there's a few things that we need to make sure we understand about this story. One, that was the wife of one of his friends. It wasn't a random guy. Found out a little bit later, talks about these 30 strong men that, that David had that were part of his army. And one of them is Uriah the Hittite. And that's this, this lady's husband. So this, him, him bringing her into his castle to have sex with her was not just a violation of her, but a violation of a friendship. And the second thing we need to make sure we understand is we don't... This was not a consensual thing. When the king sends guards over to your house to say, the king wants to see you, you don't go, nah. And so she was put in an impossible situation and, you know, and ultimately becomes pregnant. And then ultimately, David tries to trick Uriah into having, bring her, bringing him back from the battlefield to have sex with her so they would think it was his kid, and he wouldn't do it. So ultimately, he had his friend and loyal soldier killed. Because there was a moment when it called for him to be a courageous leader and he chose to be passive. And there was a time for him to be a tender protector of the women that were left there while the men were on the battlefield and he chose to be an aggressor. And so he had both tools and when he used them well, he was a man after God's own heart. But when he used them in the wrong way, it destroyed him. And ultimately is one of the primary causes for why the kingdom was ultimately ripped from his family just two generations later. And then you've got Jesus. And I don't know, again, I don't know how much you see the battles over us trying to figure out who Jesus is, but the same battles that we talk about manhood, they happen with Jesus too, where it's like, now Jesus was a fighter. He overturned tables and now Jesus cried when his friend Lazarus and when he, he could have stood up to the government and then he didn't. And it's like, so we like to fight about it. But again, we always think of an either ors and really it's both ands. Jesus was in fact, both of those things. He was not afraid to look at the Pharisees and the power structure and speak truth to them. And even when he supposedly was passive and not fighting for himself and standing up to the government when he was on trial, what he actually did was in of incredible courage to, to know that he was about to be executed and to die as a sacrifice for all of us takes an incredible amount of strength, an incredible amount of courage. And we also do see a Jesus who on the cross is very tenderly concerned about his mother who did cry when his friend, when his, when his friend had died and he saw how sad his sisters and all of Lazarus's friends were. Jesus definitely had a very tender heart. But I think we can also say that Jesus demonstrated an overwhelming amount of strength and courage. And so we need to figure it out. We need to figure out the difference between really godly strength and courage and kind of this aggressive authoritarian position that sometimes we think that guys are supposed to be. And we also need to figure out what it means to be tender and gentle, not soft and passive. I need to figure out, we need to figure out what both of these things are. And we need to, to be godly men. We need to have both of these tools firmly in our belt 
to be able to be strong and courageous, and also to be able to be tender and gentle. And not only do we need both of those tools, but we need to figure out what situations call for which one or what what combination of both. In parenting, in marriage, in your job, in your personal life, all of these different areas, you need to figure out like how to use both of these because in all aspects of your life, to be a godly man, you're going to have to figure out how to be both, how to be a warrior and a poet and ultimately to become a warrior poet. And so this is really just kind of introduced the topic to you guys, kind of kind of set the stage. And then I'm going to hand it over to Roger and Mark, kind of help us get it a little bit more practical of how these ideas can play out in our practical life. And so I hope uh, you enjoyed that. I hope you will stick around for the next couple of episodes. And again, I am the lead pastor at the Grove Church, and we would love to see you on a Sunday morning if you just have found us and you're not a part of our church. You can find all the information you need at thegrovechurch.org slash connect. We'd love to know that you're listening. You can come visit us on a Sunday morning if you are in Northwest Arkansas, or if you are not, you can catch us streaming as well. And again, thank you so much for joining us. 